Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's great to be with you today. And uh, I trust you come in this morning overflowing in the joy and the comfort of the Lord from a sweet and quiet holiday season. And I uh, hope you're ready to eat a little more this morning of the Word of God. And so would you open your Bibles, please, to Psalm chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible with you, um, I want to encourage you to use one of those Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. And especially if you're new with us, uh, the way we study the Bible on Sunday mornings is uh, we look at one specific passage and uh, we keep going back to it throughout the course of our time together. And so um, keep that Bible open the whole time so you can track with us while we walk through it. And if you're new to the Bible, you'll find Psalm chapter 2 on page 472. While you're turning there... Um, Apologies in advance. I'm a little under the weather this morning. Just from the neck up, everything else is great, but just this part is not good. And so I apologize in advance for any gross noises this part of my person makes. But we're going to make it. We're going to be all right. It'll be good. Um, and uh, excited this morning to dive into Psalm chapter 2. For this Christmas season, we're going to be studying a few select psalms on Sunday mornings, and specifically, these are psalms that speak of the Messiah. My intention in this small series is not to cram these psalms into Advent themes, uh, though we may touch on them here and there, but simply to preach the Messiah as he's portrayed in these different psalms. Uh, and when we look at him in the way he's portrayed in the text, it, it'll inevitably take us to Bethlehem and then ultimately to Golgotha. Uh, but I'm looking forward to time in these messianic psalms uh, through the Christmas season. Now, Christmas music never evokes a neutral response. It, it always pushes some kind of button. Some songs evoke nostalgia. Some songs evoke happiness. Some songs evoke annoyance. Some songs evoke rage. Some songs start the season as a song of happiness, but after hearing it eight trillion times, it becomes a song of rage. We all have these visceral reactions to Christmas music. But I wonder if you've ever had this experience where a very familiar Christmas hymn moves from a place of nostalgia to a place of worship. And I mean just maybe unexpected, but real, soul-deep, weeping, joyful worship. I find myself caught off guard every Christmas season. A certain song will just land the right way. A certain line, a lyric that I haven't thought about before for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit um, amplifies that in my brain. And so this song that's very familiar for whatever reason, takes on a new depth of meaning. Maybe you've had that same experience as well. It, this kind of worship should mark the lives of God's people, not just at Christmas time, but all the time. Worship is the business of heaven. You know, in every biblical depiction of heaven that we have, worship is happening there. We're saved to worship. But that's easier said than done for any number of reasons. We often struggle to worship as we should. Perhaps it's because we view God more of a divine fixer rather than the object of worship. 
It could just be we don't feel up for it or we feel like worship might be boring. Uh, and the reality is this, when, when you came in here this morning, your thought may not have been, hey, I need to worship more. Your thought may have been, I just need help. And so you can push back here and say, look, it, it's nice to talk about worship, Pastor, but um, I don't just need to sing a song. I, I, I've got real problems. I've got real hurt. I've got real doubts and fears. I need real help today. Don't we all? That's, that's why we're here. And, and the Lord knows that. He knows that we come in here in need, at a deficit. We come in limping. And yet still, he calls us to worship. Why? Because worship is not a chore. Worship is not a burden laid on God's people. It's, it's not the way that we escape our sorrows. But it's where you and I take refuge in our Savior. And we sing again and remember again his power and his hand that are for us. Worship if it's a problem for you, if it's a problem for me, the, the problem is not with worship. The problem is with our view of God. Worship is almost an involuntary response. Almost an involuntary response. I mean, think about when, uh, let's say the Thanksgiving turkey just looked immaculate this week. All right, It slides onto the table and ah, it's just immediately you worship the turkey, right? Your favorite celebrity walks in the door. Ah, it's involuntary. Here's something awesome, incredible. I worship. You go to your favorite sandwich place. You drink your favorite cup of coffee. Worship just, it happens involuntarily whenever the thing in front of us, uh, we understand its value. And so it is for us in Jesus. Worship is not a chore or a burden. It's our response to understanding the great value and worth of Jesus. And so that's my goal today from Psalm chapter 2 is to show you why Jesus is worthy of worship. When you're in need, when you're broken, when you've been beat up, when your heart doesn't feel like it, here's why Jesus is worthy of our worship. Psalm chapter 2 is a call to worship. And it gives us four reasons to worship Jesus with our lives and our lips. I want you to follow along with me as I read Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. Now, 
I've said that Psalm 2 calls us to worship Jesus. But this is an Old Testament passage. Jesus is not on the scene yet. Jesus isn't named in Psalm chapter 2. So how can this psalm properly be about Jesus? Well, God's people have read Psalm chapter 2 in two different ways since before the birth of Jesus and after the birth of Jesus. Before the birth of Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah mentioned in Psalm chapter 2, was a mighty king, a political leader chosen by God, this incredible leader that God's people waited on. But since the birth of Christ, the church has understood that Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah is not just some little political leader, but he's the eternal king with an eternal reign. When the early church read Psalm chapter 2, they saw Jesus all over it. And that's why we're going to study this psalm with Jesus in view. And this is why Psalm 2 gives us four reasons to be unstoppable worshipers of Jesus. Why should you worship Jesus today? The first reason is this. Jesus is the Messiah who's hated by the world. Why should I worship Jesus? He's the Messiah. The world's response to his messianess is it hates him. So the psalm begins by describing rebellion against the Lord and his anointed one. Look at what the psalm says, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Kings of the earth take their stand. Rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. And here's their speech to one another. They say in verse 3, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. So who's doing the rebelling in verses 1 to 3. Well, in verse 1, it's nations and peoples. In verse 2, it's kings and rulers. And so in those designations, there's this sense of totality of those who are rebelling. Nations and peoples, kings and rulers, from top to bottom, everyone is plotting together, conspiring together against the Lord and his anointed one, the Messiah. There's also this geographic expansion of rebellion as it goes from nations in verse 1 to the earth in verse 2. It's not just a localized hot spot of hate. This is a global international movement of rebellion against God. And what's that rebellion like? Well, the passage tells us it's a coordinated evil. Nations and peoples plot kings and rulers conspire together. It's also an insane evil, as all evil is insane. Its insanity is voiced in verse 3 by all the co-conspirators. They interpret the love and boundaries of God as chains and ropes. In verse 3, we hear this insane take on God that is as old as the Garden of Eden. These rebels accuse God of restraining them rather than blessing them, of enslaving them rather than liberating them. And what form does this rebellion take? This rebellion doesn't just look like powerful people and armies raising their fists to the sky and cursing God. Rather, the psalm implies that this rebellion comes in the form of the persecution of God's people. The intensity of that persecution may vary from time to time and place to place, but the truth of this is witnessed throughout history. 
In biblical history, we have the Pharaoh who enslaved God's people in Egypt. This is how Pharaoh rebelled against God. We have a similar example in Herod the Great who massacred innocent children out of the paranoid fear of losing his throne. There's another great example of world powers rebelling against God by persecuting his people in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested by Jewish religious authorities for preaching about Jesus. And Peter and John were threatened by these authorities that if they continued to preach Jesus, severe punishment would follow. So Peter and John were then released with this threat. They returned to their fellow believers and they told them what happened. And then the whole gathering of people prayed this way. In Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 25, they prayed, You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. So the early church understood the crucifixion of Jesus to be the pinnacle of this rebellion against God and then persecution against the church as the continuation of that rebellion against God. History is full of the blood of the Messiah's followers. So what are we to make of this? Well, our view of the world has to begin right here in verses 1 through 3. When we look out at the world, all the chaos, all the sin, the rotten decay, we see a portrayal of what's stated here in these verses. And so we may be, uh, we, we may be outraged at what we see, but we can't be shocked by what we see. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. So we may be outraged at any number of things in this world. We may be outraged at the proliferation of abortion in our country. We may be outraged at the silencing of the Christian voice in the public square. We may be outraged at the brutality Christians suffer around the globe. But we cannot be shocked. If we are surprised by these things, it is only because we have not read our Bibles. The world loves its own. And you are not of this world. You are a follower of Jesus. And so if the world speaks hatred to God, what should you speak to God? It takes real faith to stand for Christ in a world that hates him. It takes great courage to sing his praises when the world plots their rebellion. Your worship of Jesus sets you apart from the world that hates him because you know he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that all of human history runs through. Why should you worship him? Because he is the Messiah. A second reason to worship Jesus is because he is the king enthroned by God the Father. Excuse me for a second. He is the king enthroned by God the Father. So if all we had of this psalm were just the first three verses, then there'd be reason for us to despair. But the song continues, and the insane rebellion of the kings of the earth is met by the power and compassion of God. Verses 1 through 3, who's the speaker? It's the kings of the earth. 
Verses 4 through 6, the speaker is God the Father, the one they are rebelling against. And how does God respond? Look at verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. What does God laugh at? He laughs at their arrogance. He laughs at their plotting and conspiring. He laughs at their belief that they can overthrow him. There has never been a threat against God and his people that God has not found insultingly amusing. God is not scared. He does not quake. He is not surprised. He is not worried. No matter the politicians, the dictators, the tyrants, the terrorists, the antichrists, God is unimpressed. To think that God's kingdom can be threatened by such human trifles as crosses or persecutions is utterly laughable. So when we're unsettled by the fear that might come to us from reading verse 3, we find comfort in God's terrifying laughter at the schemes of evil in verse 4. Do you know what God does not laugh at? God does not laugh at the suffering of his people. He's not amused by it. He's not indifferent to it. In fact, Psalm chapter 18, verse 7 tells us that the Lord burns with anger at the suffering of his children. In verse 4, God's laughter is terrifying because his children are suffering and he is going to respond on their behalf. And so after laughing at the scene, God speaks in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 sets the scene. Verse 6 is the content of the speech itself. In verse 5, the tone of his speech is angry and terrifying. And the purpose of the speech is wrath. And then verse 6, here's the content. He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The kings of the earth conspire. They get everyone together and they say, let us. God answers in verse 6 with an emphatic, I have. The kings want to be in charge, but God has installed his king. The throne is filled. There's no power struggle. The matter is settled. The one who sits on the throne is a powerful king to God's people and a terrifying wrath to God's enemies. But he isn't the sort of king you would expect. And that's mainly seen in the geographic details of verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. What do you know about Zion? To call it a mountain is really generous. It is either a tiny mountain or a big hill. It is not a mountain of the Everest variety. It's more at home probably in New Hampshire than it would be in Appalachia. I mean, there's, it, it's not like some big towering peak. It is a modest mountain, puny by any measurement. It's this tiny banana strip shape of land in backwoods Judah, and there sits this modest capital Town Again, city would be generous to call Jerusalem on this day. 
Um, but uh, here's a tiny little town, Jerusalem, on this tiny, modest mountain, Zion. Uh, they are a tiny kingdom surrounded by world powers. So, look, uh, just as the, the holy city is unimportant, the mountain is unimportant, what gives it its value is that God has chosen it. Its power and its prominence, its success comes from God himself who said, this is my mountain, this is my place, and this is my king. You see, just as the holy city and the holy mountain are relatively weak, so are the beginnings of the king installed by God. That king was born to peasant parents. He was born in obscurity. He's born in borrowed accommodations. He's born in the weakness and vulnerability of human form. And this is all by God's perfect design. Paul referred to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, when he wrote, God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So what should your response be when you see God's unmatched power over every enemy, and when you find comfort in his laugh, and when you see his king enthroned, and when you see his sovereign plan unfold perfectly? What should your response be? It should be a response of worship. He's to be praised by his people for his unmatched power, his perfect plan, his justice against evil, and his never-ending throne filled by his appointed king, King Jesus. We worship Jesus because he's our Messiah. He's our king. The psalm gives us a third reason to worship Jesus. It's because he is the son who saves and judges. Jesus is the Son who saves and judges. Who are the speakers in verses 1 to 3? Kings. Who's the speaker in verses 4 to 6? God, the Father. Who's the speaker in verses 7 to 9? It's the Messiah who's hated by the world and installed as king by God. And look at what he says in verse 7. I will declare the Lord's decree. So imagine the scene. Jesus is standing in front of you. He says, I'm going to tell you what the Lord, what the Father said to me. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me. Now, before you just fly past that, you've got to pause for a moment and soak in the unbelievable awesomeness of that line in verse 7. The Son is going to tell us what the Father said to him. We're given, being given access uh, to a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. This is inter-Trinitarian dialogue. And my brain can barely contain how incredible it is that we have these words recorded in Scripture. To hear what God the Father has said to God the Son. And this is what he said in verse 7. You are my Son Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So the opening line of this speech is monumentally important. You are my son. Who is the son? Well, the church has always read chapter 2, verse 7 as only pertaining to Jesus. And we know that these words pertain to Jesus because 
this line from verse 7 shows up at three pivotal points in the life of Jesus. Let me show you what they are. First of all, this line, you are my son, shows up at Jesus' baptism. It's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus is baptized and then a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so, this is my beloved son, that comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. With whom I am well pleased comes from Isaiah 42, verse 1. God the Father has sandwiched these two lines together that speak of the Messiah's role as son and servant. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. That same line is heard again in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, at Jesus' transfiguration. God the Father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The third instance of this psalm showing up in the life of Jesus is talked about by Paul in Acts chapter 13. We have in Acts 13 a record of a sermon that Paul preached in modern day Turkey. And as Paul was preaching, he references Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 as it relates to Jesus. Look at what he said. Starting in verse 30, but God raised him from the dead, and he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, we don't have a transcript of those words being spoken by God the Father at the resurrection of Jesus Christ the Son. But Paul is telling us that the resurrection is the fulfillment of this promise in chapter 2, verse 7. At the resurrection of Christ, the promise of chapter 2, verse 7 is fulfilled. And so Jesus is... God the Son at His baptism. He is God the Son at His transfiguration. He is God the Son at His resurrection. He is God the Son enthroned from eternity past to eternity future. To call Him God the Son is, is not to lower Him to a place below God the Father. As, as if He is more than a man but less than a God. Or He's the man who was chosen by God. To call him God the Son is to say that he is very God of God. Not God-like. He is 100% God. The eternal God, the creator God, that's who Jesus is. Not half man, half God. Fully God, fully man all the way. To call him God the Son is not to lower him, but to elevate him to that place where he and only he is revered and enthroned and worshipped. So he is God the Son in verse 7. And then a promise is given to him in verse 8. Look at verse 8. The Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. What were the nations and the earth doing in verses 1 and 2? Do you remember? In verse 1, the nations raged against the sun. In verse 2, they stood against the sun. But in verse 8, those who were enemies will become an inheritance by the power and mercy of God. Verse 8 promises 
an inheritance. And then verse 9 describes how that inheritance comes about. Verse 9, you will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. A strong language. And what is the meaning of it? Well, it depends on your perspective. If you read verse 9 from the perspective of God's people, then it's a comfort that Christ will deliver his church and crush his enemies. But if you read verse 9 from the perspective of God's enemies, it should make you crumble in terror. Now, verse 9 speaks of victory for the Son and his people. And that victory is a victory that's held on to in a hopeful way as God's people thought about their future. And so language from Psalm chapter 2 verse 9 shows up three different times in the book of Revelation. And all of it references the future victories of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 27, it refers to the victory of believers in Christ. In chapter 12, verse 5, it refers to Christ's future rule over his enemies. In 1915, that same language is used to describe Christ as the rider on the white horse who is trampling his enemies. So don't miss this. Psalm chapter 2 is about the power displayed at Christ's first coming and the victory that is finalized at his second coming. Jesus is God the Son who saves and judges. And that's the stuff of hallelujahs. This is why God's people worship Him, the Son. We praise Him because He's the Messiah. We praise Him because He's the King. We worship Him because He's the Son. Fourth and final reason, we worship Jesus because He's our refuge in whom we are blessed. Our first speakers in the psalm, kings. Second speaker, God the Father. Third speaker, God the Son. Fourth speaker is the psalmist himself. And who does the psalmist speak to? He speaks directly to the kings of the earth who have been plotting rebellion against the Lord and his Messiah. Now, if you had not already read the rest of Psalm chapter 2, and you got to this point and it was a fill-in-the-blank, What do you think the speech to the kings of the earth might be at this point? So far, the kings of the earth have plotted rebellion against God. God has laughed at them. The sun will break them with his iron scepter. So what sort of speech would you expect to follow here? You might expect vengeance and judgment. However, this final speech is where grace breaks in to the psalm. Look at it. Verse 10. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son or he'll be angry with you and you'll perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. So the closing lines of this psalm are an act of grace and an invitation to mercy. It's grace because it's an invitation the rebels do not deserve. It's mercy uh, because a surrender to the Son will be their escape from His wrath. The kings are told in verses 11 and 12 to serve the Son and to pay homage to the Son. If you look at your Bible, verse 12 may not say pay homage to the Son. Your Bible might say kiss the Son. If you have an NIV, ESV, King James... 
It might say, kiss the son. I love that language. What does it mean to kiss the son? It means to worship him, to pay homage to him, to surrender to him, to exalt him above all else, to receive him, to follow him, to kiss the son, to pay homage to him. So what do you think? Will, will the kings of the earth take up this offer? Do you think rebellious kings who love their power will kiss the son? doesn't seem likely, but I want you to listen to how Revelation chapter 21 describes the bright glory of the holy city of God. Revelation 21, starting in verse 24, it reads this way, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Kings of the earth, an inheritance of nations in all glory to King Jesus. Psalm chapter 2 begins with nations and kings raging against the sun. Revelation 21 ends with the nations and kings giving the sun all glory for all eternity. You didn't think that the kings would respond to God's grace, did you? But that shows how much we think of God's grace and his mercy, how appealing and powerful and beautiful it is. Some will indeed lay down their crowns at the feet of Jesus and rejoice forever in that eternal city. Those kings who rule find grace when they surrender to the Son. The same is also true for those who are ruled. You see, Psalm chapter 2 is not just about kings. It's about all of us. And the last line drives that home. All who take refuge in him are happy or are blessed. How amazing is God's grace to sinners like us? And, And if... When you read this, I I think you get to the end of this chapter and you have to ask yourself, do I know this grace? Am I taking refuge in Jesus? Have I kissed the Son? Do I worship the Son? Have I surrendered to Him? Are you a follower of Jesus today? Not are you religious. Not are you good. Are you a follower of Jesus? Psalm chapter 2 is an invitation to you. To receive the grace of God you don't deserve. To find mercy when you don't deserve it. To be loved and comforted by the compassion and saving power of Jesus Christ. It's an invitation to you. He's the only one that can do this because as the Messiah, the King, God the Son, the one in whom we take refuge, He laid down His life for your sin. No one else could love you the way Jesus has loved you. There's no one else who can pay for your sin. You can't pay for it in a way that's adequate uh, to uh, acquire eternity, eternity. Excuse me. But God the Father knew your deficit. He knew your brokenness, and he loved you, and he provided this substitute for you, God the Son. The king enthroned on Mount Zion is the one who dies at the cross in your place for your sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead. His promise said, if you turn to him, you'll be saved forever. Can you imagine what your conversation with God might be like when you stand before him? If you're not a follower of Jesus, what would that encounter be like? What words 
would fill the gap between you and God. You might say, God, look, here's, here's why you have to be good for me. Look, I've, I've done the best I can with the knowledge I had. I, I went to church. I've, I've done some religious things. Uh, look, I, I know I wasn't as good as I should have been. I, I, I meant to do better. And I did do some good things. And look, I've got some people that can attest to me. Like, my mom will tell you what a good person I am. And my grandmother will back her up. I've got people who can testify on my behalf. And, but look, I, I know I'm not the best person, but look, I'm not the worst. I haven't done this thing and this thing and this. I had the opportunity to do this bad thing, and I didn't do it. So, God, you've got to be good to me in this moment. But when you kiss the son, when you surrender to him, you receive everything God has for you. You stand before God and you don't have to fill that gap with your own words and frantic pleas. God speaks. And the father says this, I love you. And I've proved that because I gave my son for you. No one else could do what he's done. He laid down his life for you. You rebelled against me and him. You deserve wrath. But he took it. And in its place, you get credited with all of his holiness, all of his righteousness, all of his eternal life. His reward, I'm giving to you. Your punishment, I've given to him. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You don't say a word. You don't do a thing because Christ has done it all. And you are invited this morning to turn your soul to Jesus. To be saved, forgiven, all your guilt wiped away, all your shame removed. To be embraced by him as you have kissed him. Today will you surrender to the Son. Psalm 2 is a beautiful invitation to experience the grace of God for the first time or for the millionth time. He loves you, and we must pay homage to him. So if I were to ask you, what's the main point of Psalm chapter 2? What's the action it's calling the reader to do? I, I would hope your answer would come from verse 12. Your answer would be, we are to pay homage or to kiss, or to worship the Son. Why? Because He's the Messiah. He's the King. He's the Son. He's the one in whom we take refuge. Now, as I stated at the beginning of my sermon, there's many things that may hinder our worship. Immature Christians don't worship because they don't see the value of it. Self-centered Christians don't worship because they think of Jesus only as a fixer. But one common reason that we fail to worship, and one that concerns me most, is, is when we are living in turmoil. We don't feel like worshiping when we're in emotional turmoil or our life is in chaos. It's easier to worship when there's equilibrium in life. Otherwise, we might feel like we're hypocrites, just playing the part to stroke the ego of a God who demands worship from us. But the call to worship does not require us to ignore the difficulties of life. Worship is not a place for plastic smiles and fake happiness. But, but rather, worship is where we are our most authentic selves. We bring the sorrows of our lives to our Messiah, our King, God the Son, and in Him we find refuge for our souls. 
And worship is not about soothing God's fragile ego. Rather, it's where we find real strength and real healing when we take refuge in the Savior who loves us. What is that like? What's it like when the Messiah is our refuge? We're given a vivid description of this in Isaiah chapter 61. Again, the Messiah is the speaker. Jesus is the speaker in Isaiah 61. And this is what it is like when he is our refuge. Look at what Jesus says. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair, and they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify Him. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, come to Jesus. Take refuge in Him. Kiss the Son and be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we look at the horrors of this world and we know that there's a part of us that contributes to that. Because by our sin, we, we have brought rebellion and destruction. We have conspired and plotted with nations and kings. We are sinners through and through. There's no one who's righteous, not one. But Father, I'm grateful for your grace and mercy given to us through your anointed one, whom you've enthroned as king for all eternity, through the son who is our refuge. And I know my brothers and sisters in this room have come to Jesus for their rescue. Thank you for so great a salvation as this for rescuing us from all our rebellion, forgiving us from all our sin, removing from us the guilt and shame that we have heaped on ourselves and laying all of that on Jesus at the cross. We're grateful for a Savior who died and rose again and who is coming again, and with him comes victory forever and ever. We long for that day. Lord, lift our hearts today as we take refuge in you let our knowledge of the value of Jesus and the person of Jesus and the character of Jesus and the work of Jesus result in unrestrained, unstoppable praise from our lives and from our lips. And God, for those in here that don't know you as their Savior, may they heed your call today to receive your grace and turn to the Son and find the life that you have saved for them. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.